Thank you for the warm welcome. What a blessing to be back with you guys. I always love filling in for Pastor Jack. Honored to do that. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'd like to pray one more time as well while you're turning there. Heavenly Father, we're just so thankful for what you've done in our lives up to this point and all you have in store for your people. And God, as we turn our attention to the scriptures, we do so with thanksgiving. Thankful that we can do that here in this country, that we have religious freedom to gather together in a place like this and worship you and now give attention to your words. So God, we ask for your blessing on this time. We pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to every person here today, whether they know you personally or maybe they were invited by a friend today wouldn't even consider themselves a Christian yet. God, we pray that your spirit would be moving and working here in this place and touching hearts. And we pray the same for the online audience, those who are out there all over the country, even the world, tuning in right now. God, we pray that you would bless them as well, God. So have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are certainly living through some interesting times, aren't we? You open up your news app and learn that Russia is aligning itself more closely with Iran and Turkey, something the Bible prophesied would happen in the last days in Ezekiel 38 and 39. You swipe over to the next story and you learn that pay with your palm technology is coming to a store near you soon. That sounds similar to something you've read about in the book of Revelation, where people will be paying with just a mark on their hand or on their forehead. You swipe to do a little more reading and you see that anti-Semitic incidents are on the rise. Well, that's interesting because Zechariah 12 said that that would be happening in the last days. Looking for something a little more lighthearted, you keep swiping only to hear of rumors of wars and the rise in lawlessness and violent crimes. And all of this on the heels of a global pandemic. Well, these kinds of things have many people wondering, what's going on? Does the Bible speak about these things? Could Jesus be coming back soon? What does the Bible say about the future? That's what I'd like to talk to you about this morning. In the past, I've specialized in apologetics, defending the faith. Well, I also have an interest in Bible prophecy, and I hope if you don't mind if we do a little dive into that today. Part of me hesitated uh, to teach on Bible prophecy because you're probably the best taught church on the planet uh, when it comes to Bible prophecy. Uh, And why limit it to that? All the other subjects as well. You're very well taught here, but I decided to do it anyways. We're going to dive into Bible prophecy. I'd like to lay out for you in our time together today a concise chronological overview of 10 major end time events in the Bible. And my hope in doing this is that you'll leave here with a little bit better understanding of how the different passages related to Bible prophecy fit together. But I'm also hoping that God would use this time to help you reassess how you are living your life in light of all that God says is coming in the future. That's why God's laid it out for us. 
Bible prophecy is not there to entertain the curious. Bible prophecy is there so that we might more wisely align our lives with God's plan for the future. So let's dive in and we'll start by looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul speaks about what's going to happen in the last days. If you don't have a Bible, I'll put it on the screen for you. He says, but know this, don't, don't be ignorant of this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Pause there. Notice that Paul doesn't say, hey, in the last days before Jesus returns, everything's going to be amazing. <laughs> Everyone's going to be getting along. Economies are going to be roaring. Christians will be enjoying unprecedented religious freedom. I wish that's what he said. But no, God revealed to Paul that the last days would be difficult. But why? Why are things going to be difficult? Paul answers that question in verse 2. He says, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. These are some of the reasons why the last days will be difficult. People are going to be lovers of money, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Could this be said of many people today? Is this the way people are behaving? Sure seems that way. I'm not going to give you any statistics to show you all of this godlessness is taking place. You don't need statistics. We're swimming in this stuff. We see this all over the place. Well, this is what the Bible said would be happening In the last days, I call it societal degeneration. If you're a note taker, number one, societal degeneration. This is what happens when societies move further and further away from God. So when we turn on the news and hear about some of the awful things going on, it doesn't surprise us. The Bible already told us that this is what the world would be like in the last days. It's grieving to watch it unfold, but as Christians, we don't despair. The devil would love to immobilize Christians today with desperation and fear. He'd love to get us out of fellowship and make us ineffective. But we we resist the temptation to do that. And instead, we pray We stay in fellowship with other believers. We study the Bible. We trust the Lord. We share the gospel with people. We vote. We do all that we can to be salt and light. And one of these days, maybe soon, right in the midst of all the things mentioned there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible says that a trumpet is going to blast and Jesus is coming for his people. Number two. This is the second major event I'd like to discuss for a couple of minutes. This event is also known as the rapture. And as you Bible students know, this is an imminent event now. There are no prophecies that need to be fulfilled before this event could happen. It could happen this week. 
Now, the classic passage on the rapture is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, says that the Lord, speaking of Jesus, will himself descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's coming a time when Jesus Christ will descend from heaven, Paul says, to gather his people. At this event, the Bible says that the dead in Christ will rise first. Who are the dead in Christ? Well, that's simply a reference to Christian believers who have died. When Jesus descends from heaven to gather his people, these persons' bodies are going to be resurrected. Now, you Bible students know that when a Christian dies today, he or she goes immediately into the presence of God. Why do we believe that? Well, because of verses like Luke chapter 23, verse 43, where Jesus told the repentant thief on the cross, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. He wasn't going to be buried and wait around for, you know, a couple thousand years before the resurrection took place. No, his spirit was going to immediately join Jesus in heaven the very day he died. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, we are of good courage and even prefer, he says, to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So that's what happens when a Christian dies today, their spirit goes into the presence of God, their bodies are laid to sleep in the ground. Well, when Jesus descends from heaven to meet us in the clouds, their bodies, whether they've been buried or even cremated, will rise, the Bible says. They're going to be resurrected and reunited to their spirits that have been with the Lord since the time of their death. Well, what happens next? Paul answers that in verse 17. He says, then we, not the dead in Christ, but those of us who are alive on the earth when this takes place, shall be, he says, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Note those two English words, caught up. The two words there are the Greek word or the translation of the Greek word harpazo or rapturo in Latin from which we get our English word rapture. The leading Greek lexicon says that this Greek word harpazo means to snatch, seize, or to take suddenly and vehemently to take or carry off by force. So that's a literal definition of what this word harpazo means. Well, that's what's going to happen to a generation of people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and who are alive on the earth at the time this event occurs. They, perhaps us, are going to escape death, the Bible says, and be seized, carried off, harpazoed, if you will, caught up to meet the Lord in the air. How amazing is that going to be to behold Jesus for the first time with your own eyes? Amazing. Now, something astounding happens to our bodies as we're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Paul talked about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 51 and 2, he said, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. He's using a figure of speech there known as a euphemism to refer to death. 
He's making it clear to us that not all Christians are going to taste of death because some of us are going to be alive when this event happens. So he says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So when Jesus comes, our mortal earthly bodies that are subject to death and disease and so forth are going to be changed into incorruptible, immortal, heavenly bodies. Bodies that are fit for heaven, fit for eternity. Aren't you looking forward to that? Everyone over 40 says, amen. (laughs) The young people are like, I guess, I don't know. I'm doing good. (laughs) Wait till you turn 50. 1 Corinthians 15 will be your favorite chapter in the Bible. Well, what happens next? Where is Jesus going to take us when this glorious event takes place? Well, the answer is back to his father's house. He told the disciples that in John chapter 14, on the eve of his arrest and crucifixion. In John chapter 14, verse 2, he said, in my father's house are many dwelling places, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus is going to usher his followers back into his father's house in heaven where we'll begin enjoying fellowship with him and all of our loved ones who have preceded us into glory. Do you have a loved one in heaven? I think many of us do. Well, Christian, you're going to be with them again. And you know, 10,000 years into glory, looking back here on this short life and this time of separation from them will just seem like a day or two. We look forward to that. So, number one, we have societal degeneration. We believe that we're seeing that right now. At any time, we could have event number two, the coming of Jesus for his people. That brings us to a third major event I'd like to discuss. If you're a note taker, jot it down. The Believer's Day of Rewards. The Believer's Day of Rewards. This event is also commonly known as the Bema Seat Judgment, and we'll see why here in just a moment. This day of rewards for believers is mentioned among other places in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where it says, we, speaking of believers, of Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The Greek word there for judgment seats in verse 10 is the word bima. Why did Paul call this place where Jesus will be seated the bima? Well, the bima in Paul's day was the name of the raised platform with steps that led up to it in the Grecian arenas where the umpire or the ruler of the people sat. And it was always from the bima seat that the awards were given out to the contestants. Now, the original recipients of Paul's letter in the city of Corinth would have immediately understood what Paul was speaking of. In fact, the ruins of the Bema seat that stood in the city of Corinth in the first century still stand today. You're seeing a photo of them right there on the screen. But brothers and sisters, according to the Bible, there is coming a time when all believers will stand before Jesus Christ, not at the Bema seat in some sports arena, 
but the heavenly beam is seen. Notice that the Bible says we must all appear there. Now, some of you are getting a little nervous. You're like, what's going on here, Charlie? I mean, judgment? What's the purpose of standing at the beam of judgment seat? I thought Christians were forgiven of their sins and weren't going to be judged for their sins. Well, if you've thought that, you're right. If you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, you will not be judged for your sins. Jesus already received your judgment on the cross. Praise the Lord for that. The beam of judgment will not be a judgment of condemnation, but a judgment of evaluation. It's going to be a place where Jesus will evaluate what you have done with the gifts, the talents, the finances, the the resources that he has put into your care. Why the evaluation? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 13 and following, he says, but there is going to come a time of testing at the judgment day to see what kind of work each builder, each Christian has done. Everyone's work will be put through the fire to see whether or not it keeps its value. If the work survives the fire, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. So Christian, one day the Lord is going to evaluate what you've done with the gifts and talents, the resources he's given you. Your good works will be rewarded, the Bible says. Those works that were done perhaps with impure motives are going to be burned up. So before I move on to the next point, I want to encourage you here, don't waste your life. Do you know you have a face-to-face appointment with Jesus? You know, as a young Christian many years ago, I was thinking about what heaven would be like, and I was wondering if I'd even meet Jesus. Because I was thinking, you know, wow, it's going to be really crowded. I mean, what's the line going to be like, you know, to meet Jesus? I mean, that's... I might be standing in that line for years, you know. And I was wondering, really, if I would ever even meet him face to face. And then I read this verse and I thought, I have a face to face appointment with him. We must all stand before the Bema seat judgment of Christ. You're going to stand there one day and he's going to have a talk with you about what you did in this life with your finances, your gifts, your talents, those resources he's given to you. And I I want to encourage you, be in prayer about that. I don't know how much longer we have before we have that, you know, we're going to be standing before him, but let's redeem the time. Be in prayer. God, what do you want to do with my finances, my talents, my energy, the good health you've blessed me with, these gifts that I have? I want to use them. And and, and be in prayer about how you could use them right here even in in this congregation to further the work that God wants to do. In and through this congregation, there's all kinds of exciting things that God, I think, would like to do if the right people would, you know, step up and volunteer and make themselves available. So be in prayer about that. In eternity, you will never regret having lived wholeheartedly for the Lord. You're never going to look back and think, well, that was a waste of time helping out in the children's ministry. No, when the rewards are being handed out, you're going to think, whoa, glad I did that. This is amazing. All right, so first we have societal degeneration. Then we have the coming of Jesus for his church, followed by the believer's day of rewards. What's going to be happening here on the earth while we are with the Lord 
after the rapture of the church. Well, that brings us to a fourth major event we want to highlight, and that is the tribulation. The tribulation. After the rapture, a man energized by Satan will rise to power in Europe. The iron and clay feet and Nebuchadnezzar's vision of a revived Roman Empire spoken about in the book of Daniel. This person is known as the Antichrist. As this person is gaining political, economic, and even religious control of the world, even declaring himself to be God, the true and living God will begin pouring out a series of judgments on a sinful, unrepentant, Christ-rejecting world. Speaking of this time in Matthew chapter 24... Jesus said, then there will be a great tribulation. This is why we call it the tribulation. Jesus called it that. Such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Some of God's judgments upon the world will include deadly famines, huge out of control fires. These are all listed for us in the book of Revelation. We read about an asteroid. John describes it as something like a great mountain burning with fire that crashes into the sea and kills a third of the creatures in the sea and destroys a third of the world's ships, likely the result of massive tsunamis. We read of a prolonged drought. Another judgment involves the unleashing of demons for a period of five months who will torment people. We're told that incurable open oozing sores will break out on worshipers of the Antichrist, people who take the mark of the beast. Another judgment involves everything in the ocean being killed, Revelation 16, verse 3. We're told that another judgment will involve a a turning up of the heat, if you will, that the earth will be scorched with great heat. Following that, darkness across the planet. These are laid out in chronological order here for you. Uh, The next judgment, a worldwide earthquake. So powerful, the Bible says the cities of the nations will fall. As a result of that same earthquake, the Bible says that islands are going to disappear and mountains are going to crumble. And the very next verse, Revelation 16, verse 21 says that will be followed by huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each that come down from heaven upon men. By the end of the tribulation, its environment, or the earth's environment, and its population are going to be devastated. The book of Revelation tells us that more than half of the world's population will die during this time. Can you imagine the widespread panic and fear? I mean, we saw what happened during COVID. The panic and the fear. This this is like on a whole other level. But you know what I find amazing is that even in the midst of this judgment, God is going to continue to make salvation and forgiveness possible to people. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and 7 says that there will be an angel who will fly around carrying the everlasting good news to preach to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. That's one of the primary purposes of the tribulation, to wake people up. If people won't come to their senses right now during this age of grace when God is mercifully withholding these kinds of judgments, God, who is not willing that any should perish, will shake things up some. And as a result, the Bible tells us that multitudes will turn to Jesus Christ. 
for the forgiveness of their sins and the salvation of their souls. So we rejoice in that. That might be the very time that some of our prodigal sons and daughters come back and repent and finally get right with God. So there's going to be a huge harvest during the tribulation. Unfortunately, though, many of those same people will also suffer intense persecution and even death for not worshiping the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 13 makes it clear that his government will be killing people who refuse to worship him. How much better it would be just to get right with God right now and not be here on the earth when these kinds of judgments are poured out. I urge you to do that if you haven't. Get right with your maker. Place your faith in Jesus. Stop running. All right, moving along. Let's talk about a fifth major event on the prophetic calendar. This is the invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39. The invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39, I and many Bible commentators believe there are good reasons to conclude that this event happened sometime during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. So let's consider this passage. Ezekiel prophesied in chapter 38 and 39 that in the latter years, the last days, the Jews would be gathered back into their homeland and then eventually invaded by a massive military force. Of course, as many of you know, the prophecy about the Jews being brought back into their homeland has been fulfilled. This is one of the indicators we truly are living in the last days. Well, since that time when Israel was declared a nation in 1948, Israel has been attacked uh, by her neighboring countries several times, but nothing on the scale of what Ezekiel prophesied would happen In this amazing section of scripture, Ezekiel tells us the very countries that will invade Israel, Magog, Tubal, Torgamah, Persia, and a few others. That's what the countries were named back in Ezekiel's day, 2,600 years ago. Well, today, those countries have names like Iran, Russia, Libya, Sudan, Turkey, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Tajikistan. That's interesting. Could this massive military invasion be right around the corner? It could be. All of these nations there on the screen, with the exception of Russia, have one thing in common. What's that? Islam and a demonically inspired hatred of the Jewish people. I don't know if you're following what's happening in the Middle East much these days. We have enough news here in our own country to try to keep up with, but it appears to many students of Bible prophecy and even especially among those who are on the ground there in the Middle East that the stage is being set for the Ezekiel 38 and 39 invasion. This invasion could be coming soon, which is interesting because if the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39 appear to be uh, aligning and they happen after the rapture of the church... Well, then you can see why many students of Bible prophecy think Jesus might be coming for us sooner than we thought. We'll just have to wait and see. Now, it very well could be that when Jesus comes for his people and millions of Christians vanish, that America will crumble as a world power. With America on its heels, Israel's enemies might think that that's finally the perfect time to destroy Israel. They've already made it clear they want to push the Jews out into the Mediterranean Sea. 
That's been well established. But boy, are they going to be in for a surprise when they try to pull it off. Ezekiel 38 and 39 tell us that God will use a massive earthquake, a plague, and hailstone mixed with fire and burning sulfur to quickly and totally destroy every last soldier. The devastation will be so overwhelming and so obviously the result of divine intervention. God says this about that day when he defends Israel. In Ezekiel 38 verse 23, he says, I will display my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the sight of many nations and they will know that I am the Lord. So the world's going to realize in a powerful way when they turn on the news that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is very much alive and well. Now, it may be the total destruction of these invading armies that finally allows the Jews to rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. We are confident that the Jews will rebuild their temple. Why is that? Well, because of verses like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, that says that the coming Antichrist will one day take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Jesus referred to this event in Matthew chapter 24. He called it the abomination of desolation. But notice where it takes place. It takes place in a temple there in Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 prophesied that this coming political ruler, the Antichrist, will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So verses like those lead us to conclude that there will be a rebuilt Jewish temple during the tribulation. Now the Jewish people would love to rebuild their temple. What's stopping them? Well, the answer is Islamic opposition and that building the Dome of the Rock. Muslims built the Dome of the Rock in the year 691 on the Temple Mount, the place where the Jewish temple sat before the Romans destroyed it in AD 70. Well, when the armies of the invading countries mentioned in Ezekiel are wiped out, Israel might finally decide to move forward with its temple plans right there on the Temple Mount, either in the place of the Dome of the Rock or just to the north where there is plenty of room for both structures. Isn't it interesting that there's that open land right there? I wonder what might go in there someday. Well, it's most likely going to be the Jewish temple. And the Antichrist, remember, who will be possessed by the devil, will likely aid in the rebuilding of the temple efforts. Why is that? Well, because he longs to stand in the temple one day and declare to the world that he is God. That's what Satan wants. He wants the adoration of the world. And he's going to do that one day. All right, let's talk about a sixth major event on the prophetic timeline. This is another military event. We call it the Battle of Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon. The word Armageddon is a word that comes from two Hebrew words. Har, which means mountain or hill, and Megiddo, the name of an ancient city in northern Israel. You put those two words together in Hebrew and you have Har Megiddo or Armageddon in English. So the word Armageddon literally means the Mount of Megiddo and it's a real place. I've been there. Many of you have been as well. 
you've been to Israel. Mount Megiddo is located about 10 miles south of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, and 15 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. We use the word Armageddon as a way of referring to the battle that the Bible says will begin to transpire there near the end of the tribulation period. The resulting disorder brought on by all of the disasters in the tribulation, God's judgments, is going to create opposition to the Antichrist and his government. Daniel talks about this in Daniel chapter 11. But because he's going to be unable to fulfill his promises of peace, a worldwide revolution will take place and major portions of the world are going to rebel against his authority. Well, this climaxes in a gigantic war that begins to unfold in the plains surrounding Mount Megiddo. Now, in the midst of this massive battle taking place in Israel, something amazing happens, and this is the seventh major event like to discuss for a few minutes, and that is the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ, right while the events of Armageddon are going on, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, he said, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Pause there for a moment. Think back to the last time you had some friends or family members over to your house, maybe to watch a movie in your living room. If you're like most of us, you dimmed the lights. Why do we typically do that? Well, so that we can cut away the distractions and focus about or focus on what's about to transpire there in our living room right before us. I find it interesting that God does essentially the same thing. He allows all of these militaries into his living room there in Israel, and he gives them front row seats. And then he turns off all the lights. Sun, moon, stars falling out of place. Total darkness. Why? So that they can witness the greatest event the world has ever seen. Jesus said, and then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Amazing. The heavens are going to open up and Jesus is coming back to the earth. This is a distinct event. It's not the rapture In the rapture. He meets us in the clouds. And takes us back to his father's house. He's coming back to the earth. And you all cheer when you read that, as I do. But did you notice something? Why are the tribes of the earth going to mourn? If we were there, we'd be dancing and singing. Right? Like, yes, Jesus is coming back. Why the mourning, though? Well, let me ask you a question. Why do teenagers at a noisy neighborhood party grieve when the police show up? (laughs) There's your answer. The lawlessness is over. The rebellion is over. Jesus is coming back to judge the earth. And I think by the end of the tribulation period, people are going to have figured out that God is angry with the wicked. 
Psalm chapter 7, verse 11. Yes, he loves the whole world, but he's righteously angry at the wickedness that takes place. And Jesus is returning to put a stop to the wickedness. Revelation chapter 19 tells us that Jesus is going to descend from heaven to the earth on a white horse. And all the earth will know. Why do I think that? Well, because Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And guess who's coming with him? You're so well taught. (laughs) All of us who've been with the Lord in heaven. Why do we believe that? Well, because of verses like Revelation chapter 19, verse 14, that says the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, this is a reference to the redeemed there, followed him on white horses. Imagine how awesome it's going to be to leave heaven on your own white horse and to descend down to the earth through the clouds and to touch down there in Israel. Imagine that. For those of you who have long wanted to go to Israel, but maybe haven't been able to pull together the funds, take heart. You are going to make it. When you try to organize the trip, it's like $4,000. When Jesus is in charge, it's like a free trip. So it's going to be way better. (laughs) And not only do we follow Jesus out of heaven, all of the angels are going to come with us as well. Imagine what a spectacle that's going to be. Why do I think that about the angels? Well, Jesus told us that in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all, not most or some, all of all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Amazing. Now, where in Israel is Jesus going to come back to? The prophet Zechariah told us in Zechariah chapter 14, verse four, he said, in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. At the top of Jesus's to-do list, if we can call it that, when he returns is putting an end to the deceptive demonic rule of the Antichrist and his false prophet. Revelation 19. Verse 20 says that those two are going to be cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And that will mark the end of the seven-year tribulation period. What happens next? Jesus has returned. We're all with him. The angels are walking around. What happens next? Well, let's talk about that. Number eight, the thousand-year reign of Christ. This is going to be an amazing time. The Bible has more to say about Jesus's coming kingdom here on the earth than any other event in all of Bible prophecy. Let me give you a brief overview of what the Bible tells us about this time. Here's some of the highlights. The unrepentant wicked who reject the gospel during the tribulation period will have been cast out at the judgment of the nations. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 25. We're told that Satan will be locked up and unable to influence the world. We're told that Jesus will be the king of the entire world. The government will rest upon his shoulders, Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, and that he will rule and reign from his capital city of Jerusalem. There will be a worldwide knowledge of God. Isaiah 11 says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
We're told that we will be uh, making yearly visits to Jerusalem to celebrate all that God has done. So we're not going to all live there in Israel. We're going to be spread out around the world. But yearly, there's going to be festivals, things going on in Jerusalem that everyone's invited to participate in. You can read about that in Zechariah 14. We're told that idolatry and false religions will be done away with. No more false religions and cults and so on. Uh, We're told that Jesus' apostles will will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus assured them of that blessing. We're told that all weapons of war will be destroyed. Isaiah chapter 2 talks about that. There's going to be a removal of sickness and healing available to people who are blind and deaf and lame. Uh, Now, you'll have your resurrection body, Christian, because you will have partaken in the resurrection or the rapture of the church. But for those who come to faith during the tribulation period in their natural body, like we live in right now, uh, may need a healing touch from the Lord or one of his disciples, and they'll be able to seek that out, the Bible says, and receive that kind of healing. We're also told that there's going to be fruitful, enjoyable labor. It says that we're going to build homes and plant vineyards. There's going to be all kinds of activity going on around the world. Uh, There's going to to be a restoration of one language. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9 seems to indicate an undoing of what happened at the Tower of Babel. We're told that the animal kingdom will enjoy perfect peace. That wolves will dwell peaceably with lambs and lions will eat straw uh, instead of gazelles and zebras and stuff. And we're told that young children will even play by the... the, um, Holes of what were once poisonous snakes without fear. So, I mean, totally different than the way it is now in some ways. Huh? Uh, there will be wonderful changes to the environment, the Bible says. Isaiah 35 indicates that the deserts will blossom profusely. Waters will break forth in the wilderness and the scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. So imagine Garden of Eden-like conditions restored. It's going to be a wonderful thousand years here on the earth with Jesus as king. Now, after God puts an end to a short-lived Satan-led rebellion at the end of the thousand-year reign, there's a ninth major event I'll highlight, and that is the Great White Throne Judgment. The Great White Throne Judgment Throughout history, when people who've turned their backs on God's forgiveness died, they've gone to a place called Hades to await judgment. In Revelation chapter 20, John tells us that after the thousand-year reign of Christ, these people will be resurrected to stand before God at what John calls a great white throne. This judgment will include the unsaved from the time of Adam up until that present time. The Bible says that the dead will come to life to stand before God, to have their deeds exposed and to face God's judgment. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that books will be opened that contain a thorough record of all the sinful deeds of each person. Can you imagine the horror these people will experience knowing that every single thing, every sinful thing they ever did and said was all carefully noted in heaven? Even the things they thought they got away with in secret. Nope, all written down. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 says that for those people, it will be a terrifying thing 
to fall into the hands of the living God. Still in their sins. And that will certainly be the case. After this judgment, the Bible makes it clear that these unrepentant, unforgiven sinners will then be thrown into the lake of fire where they will spend eternity separated from God. Friend, you do not want to end up there. That's why it's vitally important that you be reconciled to God now while there's still time. And you can be reconciled to God. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Jesus, God in human flesh, lovingly died on that cruel wooden Roman cross in your place for your sins so that you could be forgiven and reconciled to God. But he rose from the grave three days later and today stands ready to forgive you and any who will put their trust in him. The Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you'll do that, not only will God forgive you of all your sins, not only will you escape eternity in hell paying the penalty for your sins, You'll go on to enjoy all that God has in store for those who love him in number 10. Eternity in New Jerusalem. Eternity in New Jerusalem. After Satan, the fallen angels, and unrepentant sinners have been judged and locked away forever, Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 and elsewhere tell us that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Notice what John writes in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. He says, and I saw a new heaven. Don't misunderstand him. He's not speaking about the dwelling place of God heaven. The dwelling place of God needs no renovation, no restoration. He's speaking about the atmospheric heavens where the sun and the stars are. He's basically saying, I saw a new cosmos, a new universe. He says, and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Second Peter chapter three tells us that the present heavens and earth are going to pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed. Peter says with intense heat there in verse 10 and for good reason. This present earth has been contaminated by thousands of years of humanity's sin. Well, in its place, God is going to create a brand new heaven and earth. In this new heaven and on this new earth, God is going to place a wonderful new holy city for his people to live in called New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem is bigger than any city the world has ever known. It measures 12,000 furlongs in width, which if you crunch the numbers, that's about 1,400 miles wide. To help you ponder how enormous that is, think about the city of Los Angeles. It's a big city but it's only 29 miles wide. It feels like 500 at rush hour, but, um, <laughs> but think about our country. Our country, the United States of America, is 2,800 miles wide. That means if you were to draw a line down the middle from California to Kansas or wherever that would be, 1,400 miles. So the width of the city is approximately the width of half of our entire country. So it's a massive city. And not only is this city of the living God, as it's called, gigantic, it's absolutely glorious. The massive outer wall surrounding the city is jasper, which is similar to diamond in appearance. 
The city inside is made out of pure gold and it radiates with God's glory to such an extent, the Bible says there will no longer be any need for the sun. Just the glory of God lights up the whole city. The redeemed from throughout history are going to live in that beautiful new city and have the ability to go in and out of the city onto the new earth. This is going to be amazing. You know, I talk to some people, usually it's a younger Christian, and you talk to them about how, how wonderful heaven's going to be. And, you know, occasionally in conversations with them, it comes up that they're a little bit concerned about eternity being boring. Like, like what are we going to do there, Charlie? I mean, are we going to sing the whole time? Or, I mean, is there other stuff to do? You know, and, and paintings like this don't help. You know, they grew up seeing paintings like that and they're like, I don't know, you know, what are we going to do? Play harps and float around on clouds? That doesn't look that fun. Well, if you've thought heaven might be boring, maybe, maybe you're one of those people. Uh, I can assure you this, it's way better than the alternative. <laughs> okay, so you definitely want to go. But if you thought heaven might get boring, well, then you need to re-examine what the Bible actually teaches about heaven. A good place to start is by reading uh, Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. Uh, for example, Revelation chapter 21 says New Jerusalem have four, has four sides. The city has four sides to it with three massive gates on each side that never close for a total of 12 gates. Why do these massive gates never close? Well, because there's never going to be a threat to the city. So God just says, leave the gates open but also so that the city's inhabitants, you and me, can go in and out of the city onto the new earth. In eternity, in the new Jerusalem, on the new earth, there's going to be places to go explore, things to do, people to hang out with, people to get to know. I mean, it's going to be amazing. I can just imagine, you know, an angel coming on the intercom system. Uh, This is Michael. Uh, We've got a, a whitewater rafting trip tomorrow morning. 9 a.m., gate three, north side. <laughs> I, you know, if you think this present earth has a lot of cool places to go and explore and fun things to do, just imagine what a new earth might hold that's never been contaminated by mankind's sin or touched in any way by the curse or a global flood. I think it's safe to assume there's going to be things to do and see and experience you've never even thought about doing here in this lifetime. The Bible says that God is going to dwell amongst his people there. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Amazing. So... I got to tell you something. I, I was giving this presentation at a, a different church a while back, and this guy comes up to me afterwards. He says, Charlie, you know that little, that whitewater rafting thing, that slide you put up? I said, yeah. He said, well, you know, in all the photos, we're, we're wearing helmets and life preservers. <laughs> he said, in the slide right before that, you say there's not going to be any more pain or death or sorrow or crime. He's like, we're not going to need helmets and life preservers. And I thought, I never thought of that. Very good. Okay, so 
I, I'm teachable, right? So I went home, I got on the internet, and I'm like looking for whitewater rafting photos where people aren't wearing helmets and life preservers. You can't find them. They're not there. If you find one, send it to me. But, but in this life, that's a real threat, right? I mean, we might drown, you know, or hit our head on the rock or whatever. So we dress like that. But can you imagine eternity? There, there's not going to be that fear that you've experienced in this life that's kept you back from doing so much. Someone came up to me a while back and they said, Charlie, I read that somewhere that you're a surfer. I said, yeah. He said, oh, man. He's like, I really want to surf someday. I want to learn how to do that. But I, to be honest, I'm just, I'm terrified of sharks. There's that fear. That fear has kept us back in this lifetime from doing all kinds of things that we would, that in heaven, in eternity on the new earth, we're going to be like, let's go do it. No one's getting hurt. Let's, let's go, let's go whitewater rafting or whatever. Psalm 16 and verse 11 says that there in God's presence, we're going to experience fullness of joy. In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Think back to a time when you've been full of joy in this life. You know, someone called you up with some good news. Maybe you got a new job offer. Maybe it was after a sweet time of worship and you just felt like dancing. Can you imagine experiencing that kind of joy throughout eternity? A joy that will never be interrupted with bad news or tainted by a sinful thought or activity. There in New Jerusalem, we'll spend eternity with the Lord, the angels, and all of the redeemed from throughout human history. Imagine how awesome it's going to be to sit down and dine with people like Noah and Moses and David and Esther and Paul and Mary, and, and not just people we've read about in the Bible, but how about Abraham Lincoln? You know, and there goes C.S. Lewis and Charles Spurgeon and William Tyndale and Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, Chuck Smith, your loved ones who are there. Imagine the stories you'll share the fellowship, the laughter, the meals. My heart bursts with anticipation, but best of all, we will be with our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What wonderful things God has in store for those who love him. I hope you'll be there with us. Come spend eternity with us. Place your faith in Jesus. You will never regret it. I can assure you of that. If you'd like to pray with someone today to receive the Lord, to my right, your left, there's a door over here with a room with people waiting to talk and lead you in a prayer that you might get right with your maker today. So take advantage of that. And then also, knowing that we covered a lot, I wanted to let you know where you can access a transcript, all my notes from today's teaching. If you have a phone, there's a QR code there. Or you can go to my website at alwaysbeready.com. We've got an alphabetical menu on our homepage. You can scroll down to the P's, click on prophecy. And the very first article you'll see there is called 10 Upcoming Events in Bible Prophecy. And you'll see all the notes, all the verse references, everything I just shared with you. So uh, maybe that will be helpful to, to you guys to go back over. So let's go ahead and pray and we will close in a final song. Heavenly Father, God, what a blessing. It is today to have your word. Not only is it a lamp unto our feet, but it's like a spotlight, really, all the way into eternity that we might know where history is headed and what you have planned for your people. 
glorious plans, God. We so look forward to eternity with you in new Jerusalem on the new earth. Fullness of joy. What a glorious time that's going to be, God. Lord, in the meantime, as we await that trumpet blast, Jesus is coming for his church. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to be wise stewards of our time and our talents, our finances, the resources you've put into our care. We want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, when we stand there at the Bema seat. So God, strengthen us to do that. We can't live those kinds of lives without your help, without your empowering. God, so we pray that you would fill us today with your Holy Spirit and that we would be bright, shining beacons of hope and truth and love in these dark days. Use us for the furtherance of the gospel, God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you. God bless you.